Thanks, worship team. That was great. Oh, did you see Ben's new guitar? The shiny cream colour one. Wow. Fantastic. Well, <laughs> welcome. If you're a visitor here, uh, we're really pleased to see you. If you are a visitor, this is your first time or second time, in the pouch in the chair in front of you somewhere, you'll find a little card. If you could fill that in um, and leave it with us, pop it in the offertory plate or when there's a box out in the foyer afterwards, we'd really appreciate that so we got a record of your visit. Um, it's good to see some students back from their studies. Welcome home to those of you who are students. And Erlene is here. Yay! Erlene hasn't been too well, Gerald's not too well, but she's, Erlene is here this morning. Really great to see you. If you want to know where the boss is, the boss, Pastor John, he's away. He's having a, trying to have some sort of vacation time. So um, there we are. Now, last week, um, we had all sorts of fun. Um, we, had, we were throwing rockets at, at boxes, we were throwing a ball around, and there were kids all over the place. Well, I'm really sorry. We're not going to be doing that this morning. <laughs> sorry about that. So if you came back for that, then you're going to be disappointed. You need to go out to one of the kids' classes. And if you really enjoy that, they need some help leading the kids' classes, don't they? So you can have fun and help with the kids. So um, there we are. It's Memorial's weekend. And it may be that some of us here... Remember people recently, not recently, who gave their lives in active service for this country. It might seem strange for a Brit to be talking about this, but we have the same sort of thing in the UK. Um, I like Gary's shirt. That's really the stars and stripes. (laughs) Um, But it's good that we remember and give thanks to God for the freedoms that we have. Those freedoms don't come cheap. Um... And we see all sorts of attacks on righteousness. We see all sorts of attacks on peace, on nations, on groups of people. And people give their lives in defense of of what they feel is right. So we're just going to have a moment of prayer when we can just meditate and give thanks to God. So let's pray together. Lord, this morning we want to praise you and thank you for the truths that we have been declaring. Sin's cursed has lost its hold on me. Death has lost its hold on me. Jesus commands my destiny. You are my hope. Hope like no other. Lord, we have so much. We don't want to take it for granted. And this morning we just want to pause and give thanks for people who have given their lives uh, to help this nation and other nations stand up for righteousness. Lord, for those who have opposed terrorism, for those who have opposed violence, for those who have opposed war and have given their lives, we thank you and we pause to remember. We pray for families that have been torn apart by grief and loss. And we ask, Lord, that on this particular weekend, as their loved one comes to mind in a special way, that you will bring them comfort and encouragement and hope, hope in Jesus. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you for those who, even now, give their lives, who serve this nation or other nations in the military. And we pray, Lord, for those, some of us have loved ones doing that, some of us have friends who are in that role. We just pray that your blessing will go with them. We pray that you will give them wisdom. And we pray, Lord, for your goodness to be amongst them. So now, Lord, as we turn to your word... We pray that you'll speak to us. Help us, Lord, to better understand who we are. And, Lord, we just open ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, although we're not going to be throwing rockets around this morning, we have got one or two mm, less exciting, well, no, pretty exciting, but different things coming up during the sermon. So you'll just, just stay tuned. Um, if you want to go to sleep, fine, but the person next to you can nudge you when, when something interesting happens. That, that's fine. Um, now,
This goes on to the next slide. At least it usually does. I'm pressing the usual button, guys. Is there anything I can do? Sorry? I can't hear anything. My hearing is rubbish. Don't push the button. Oh, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> well now what we're going to do what's coming up is Psalm 139 so I'm going to read it um, I've left out a couple of verses not because I don't like them but because they right in the middle of Psalm 139 it, the psalm abruptly changes tune and I want to focus on the majority of it so don't, please don't accuse me of being selective and, and leaving out bits we don't like. I know I'm doing that, but it's not because I don't like them. It's because they're not so relevant to what we're talking about this morning. But Psalm 139, and this is the NIV, the New International Version. And you can just listen, that's fine. If you want to look it up, fine. O Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn and if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. For you created my inmost being, You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me. Know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. That's the passage on which I want to, as it were, hang our thoughts this morning. Um, And we seem to have... Oh, good, we've got there. There we go. Uh, a wonderful psalm, one that is probably quite familiar to many of us, just emphasizing how closely, how much God knows us and loves us, that he knits us together in our mother's wombs. So this morning, what are we talking about? Well, if you looked in the bulletin, I think it says, who do you think you are? Um, we all have ID. There's a sort of blank driving license. And Socrates, because, because Pastor John is not here, I've got to sort of do a bit of the impressive sounding quotes because otherwise I get into trouble because he's very good at doing these quotes of people we've never heard of. Um, and, and also, you notice the way Pastor John has books with, with little tabs sticking out of them. See, I've got to keep up. I mean, I, I, I can't keep up with Tim. I mean, I, I, give it, I'm, I can't wander around with a sort of load of notes here. They fall all over the place. So I'll try the, the, the impressive quotes bit. Socrates, Greek philosopher, about 400 and something years before Christ, said, know thyself. Other people have coined that as well. It's good to know who we are. And this guy, Robert Brawley, who I understand is a theologian, identity and meaning in life go hand in love. To have meaning is to have identity. To have meaning is to have identity. In other words, if we know who we are, 
then that gives some purpose and meaning to our lives. It helps us in that. And so this morning we're going to be thinking for a few minutes about the whole question of identity. Now you could wrap it up and say, okay, yeah, we know that. We're made in God's image, we're a child of God. Amen, let's go home. And if you want to summarize it, yeah, okay. What does that mean? I want to sort of unpack that a bit. I was saying to Carolyn earlier, I haven't found this a particularly easy sermon to prepare. No sermon is easy. But to get your mind and, and your spirit around some of this stuff is not easy. Because I just want us to look under the surface. I want us to look a bit broader than, yeah, we're made in God's image and I'm a child of God. Yeah, we know that. But how can we open that up? How can we really grasp hold of some more of the fullness of what that means. And we can, I can only just scratch the surface of that this morning. You can probably think of other verses, other things that you could say to back this up as well. Um, so it's not exhaustive. It might be exhausting for you to sit and listen, but it's not exhaustive. It's partial. Now, sometimes it's helpful to understand something by understanding what it is not. Okay? Now, suppose you decide you're an atheist. You've got to come up with your identity that doesn't have anything to do with God. That's not a criticism, it's a statement of fact. If you don't believe in God, you're here, so who are you? And if you're a bit of a biologist, you might know that that twisted... Anybody know what that um, twirly-twirly thing is called? A double helix. And what is it? I told you my hearing's rubbish. Did anybody say DNA? Yes, everybody. Okay, good. Um, It's DNA. The chemicals that have the plan for our bodies. Now, I used to pretend to be a biology teacher years ago, um, but I've forgotten it all, so you have to put me right. But I can remember double helixes and DNA. If you don't believe in God, you've got to believe in some sort of process that arrives at human beings and animals and this creation. So you know you believe in a Big Bang. Maybe there was a Big Bang. God does things pretty spectacularly sometimes, but atheists want to leave God out. So, okay, no God, let's say. Please don't say I'm saying there's no God, okay? There is a God, but I'm just putting the atheistic point of view, okay? just to help us think about identity. So we have a genetic makeup. If we if we don't believe in God, we're the product of a process of chance, random evolution that's gone on for millions and millions of years, and all we are are these chemicals. So where does the idea of choice, thinking, values, where does life experience come in? Well, it affects us. But if we don't believe in God, there is no identity giver. There is no identity giver. There is evolution, although there may be alternative theories, but that's the most common one among atheists. And um, I didn't have a problem teaching evolution when I was a teacher. I would teach and say, well, this is what evolutionists believe. Um, I don't, actually. It was a church school in the UK, so I could say that. I had to teach it. It was on the syllabus. I don't have a problem with that, so don't get too worried if your kids are being taught evolution. But you can bring another viewpoint, and I certainly did as a teacher, and I was allowed to because it was a Christian school. Um, That's a sidebar. (laughs) So here we are. I am just genes interacting with the environment. I haven't really got a purpose because it was all a chance process. There is no spiritual realm. There is only the physical realm. Now, I think atheists have got far more faith than we have. Because to believe that, you need an enormous amount of faith. And it is a faith position. Our worldview is some set of constructs or, or theories or facts that we put our trust in to explain this world. We put our trust in God and the Bible and Jesus and the cross. Atheists put their trust in a process of random chance evolution over many millions of years that has produced us survival of the fittest and all that. It's a position of faith. They can't prove it. We can't prove it. We can't prove what we believe in a physical sense. They can't either. But it is a faith position. So when an atheist says, oh, you have a lot of faith, you say, you've got more. (laughs) 
because you need a lot of faith to believe in a process of chance evolution with no design, nothing driving the process. Questions, I'm feeling all insecure now. <laughs> yes, Steve. Where does the soul, I've got to repeat the question. Yes. We all have a soul, make sure I get it right. Where does the soul reside in our body? Oh, Brian, were you going to answer that? I saw your hand. <laughs> oh. oh, dear. Um, oh, dear, that's a difficult one. It's part of the, can, can, I'm going to come back to that a bit later. You'll have forgotten it by then, so I can dodge over it. <laughs> no. no. Seriously, I will try and come back to it a bit later. <laughs> okay, so as an atheist, who am I? What is my purpose? Am I just a speck of protoplasm produced at random after million years of nothingness? If I really believed that, I think I would be going to see the psychiatrist of depression. It's so depressing, so dehumanizing, so depersonalizing. No purpose. If you take it to its logical extreme, if it is evolution, there can be no purpose. Because who defines purpose? There's nothing anywhere to define what purpose is. There's nothing anywhere to define what good is, what evil is, what right is, what wrong is. But everybody will say, well, it's wrong to do, it's wrong to murder people, it's wrong to to sexually abuse young children. That's an almost universal thing, moral. Where does that moral come from? If you, if you have a law, a moral law, there must be a moral law giver. There must be someone who has produced that. Or can it just come by the product of chemicals coming together and gradually becoming more complex and producing proteins and carbohydrates and all that stuff that we're built from? I don't, <clears throat> I don't think so. But we're preaching to the converted, so we'll pass over that. But <clears throat> the atheist point of view is worth looking at and it's worth talking about because it helps point us in the right direction. That yes, we don't believe in just chance, we believe in a God who commands our destiny. Now, all of us have a genetic makeup, okay? We have genes, we have this DNA stuff, we are born with a particular gender, we are born with a particular personality, although that will be shaped by family, by environment. We come from a certain race. We have a certain ethnic background. We are all created in the image of God and we all suffer from a disease called sin. This is what it's like out of the box when we're born. Okay? All these things that are in the box, that's, that are hardwired inside us, are affected by the environment. And this is not an environmental science lesson, but that's why I say I found it difficult because it's trying to interweave spiritual truth with physical fact. Okay, that is our basic makeup as human beings. Whether whatever wherever we come from, whatever we believe, this is some of the stuff that we come with. Although people would quit question the whole question of the image of God and what that means in a minute, we'll come back to later. So these are the components of being a human being. There's a lot more to it. I'm grossly oversympathizing, oversimplifying. I know that. What does this mean, though? This image of God. It's something to do with relationship. Because God is a God of relationship. So it's to do with relationship. We are not isolated. And our identity is in the image of God, but it's also affected corporately. We only reach our full identity in in fellowship with other Christians because we were not meant to be isolated on our own. So, by the way, this is a sidebar. If you're listening to a podcast of this and you're listening to it because you don't like churches and you can worship God on your own at home, you are missing out and you are not fulfilled in your identity. So go back to church. (laughs) Right. Okay. Point made. So the image of God has got something to do with relationship. It's got something to do with morality, with boundaries, with right, with wrong. It's got something to do with emotion because these are all facets of our God. God, we, there's so many verses that we have looked at from time to time where God grieves, where God rejoices, where God is sad, where Jesus weeps. We see our God is a God with emotion. Our God is a God with emotion. We are made in that image. That is part of us. Sometimes we don't like to admit it, especially us blokes. None of this fuzzy, fuzzy emotion stuff. No, no, no. I I find it very difficult to sing that song in Christ alone. 
The reason I find it difficult is that I've usually got tears streaming down my cheek because of the truth that's being declared. I've told you before, I want to sing that at my funeral. Now, I don't want to sing it at my funeral. I want it sung at my funeral. That is my favorite song. Okay? Because it just about says it all for me. Who commands my destiny? Whose wrath is the wrath of God is satisfied. It's dealt with. Death has lost its grip on me. I cannot die. You cannot die. This is what it means to be made in the image of God. There is an element of choice. We can choose. Image of God. We have free will. Image of God. We have an eternal dimension to us that we sometimes call the soul or the spirit. That's the image of God. God is a spirit. We have that image, something of that image as part of us. So, when God created, and this is part of the things in your bulletin, I think, when God created, it was, and there's two words, very good. And that includes you and me. I know sin's messed it up, but let's redeem the fact that we were created good as human beings, and God's creation is good, and the mess it's in is temporary. And there is a plan that we know about to reverse the effects of sin, and we are part of that plan. What God did to create you is good. Sometimes we put ourselves down and say, oh, I'm, I'm just total rubbish. Our self-image is not so hot. We think we're just rubbish. No, you're not. You're made in the image of God. God looked at you and said, good. You're not a Friday afternoon job. You're God's special creation. Now, I have problems with that to some extent. So what, because what do you say to someone who is born with a genetic deformity, illness, handicap? Oh, well, that's how God designed you. I I, I can't explain that fully. But the effects of sin, not individual sin, but corporate sin, mean there is sickness, mean there is things not working right. And sometimes that effect afflicts one person who's born with some sort of issue or handicap. Why do they deserve it? They didn't deserve it any more or less than me or you. There's mystery. And all this stuff about identity, we have to hold with an element of mystery. I just don't understand everything because I'm not God but I do know that sin has spoiled stuff and that obviously affects some people and it, whether obvious or not, it afflicts all of us. So, that's how we're born out of the box. It's good to be a human being, but there is the impact of sin. So, some of us like computers. Uh, We we use them, whether we like them or not. Um, We use them. Just before I go on to talk about that, I just want to do a, read a couple of bits from this book here about our identity. People, this is an interesting thought. People were always coming to Jesus and asking, what must I do? And he, in effect, responded, tell me who you are, and then you will know what you must do. That's that whole thing of identity and purpose being mixed up together. And another brief quote here. Identity is the sum of everything that pertains to us and shapes us. Identity is that sense of being and self-understanding that frames our actions, communicates to others who we are, and sets the agenda for our acts. Identity drives life. It provides the energy and motivation for all else. It is the well from which life is directed and sustained. If you know who you are, you know what you must do, and if your identity is healthy, it provides a confidence that enables action. Now that's a bit of a mouthful. But again, it's just underlining identity and purpose and meaning. The more we discover who we are in Christ as human beings and as his children, the more Effective, the more comprehensively can we grasp hold of what it means to live a holy life on this earth. But there is the whole question of sin which has led to our to identity being fragmented. Sometimes you press a button on your computer and it says defrag. 
Um, I don't understand. I, I, I know it's not moving things around physically. It's sort of all sorts of noughts and ones and digital code and binary code sort of reassembling itself in order instead of being spread all over the place. Our identity has been fragmented by sin all over the place. So we have an identity crisis. Just who am I? We have confusion about gender and sexuality. And I was saying to Carolyn, this is not a sermon about gender and sexuality, but it does come into it because it's to do with identity. The bigger question in all these areas is identity. That's what's underlying this whole thing about gender, sexual identity, morality, choices. Okay? So it's fragmented and that's part of it. The whole can be summed up, as we saw in the God of Eden. Did God say? God says this and Satan comes along and says, really? Did he mean that? Nah. You're not going to die. Go on. Doubting God. Chipping away at truth. To broaden it out. That is the role of the evil one. To chip away at our identity. And so we make poor choices. We do things that are wrong. We get into wrong relationships. We, we struggle because of poor choices. And then we live in a fallen world and that impacts us. Outside influences, culture, it influences us possibly for, for evil. And internally, we have our own values and morals that get all sort of turned upside down and inside out. And the effects of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. All this process leads to death, spiritual separation from God. That's why Jesus had to die. There had to be death. Because sin was present, the only way of dealing with sin is death. Either you and I suffer it, or someone else suffers it. But boy, he suffered death. It wasn't just God decided, okay, that's enough. It had to be in God's, God's judi- uh, uh, justice system. The wages of sin is death. Anything to do with sin leads to death. So there has to be a death to deal with sin. Nothing less will do. So our identity is de- degraded, it's fragmented, it's twisted, it's broken up. We could say, if you like, we suffer from identity theft. God says it is good, so Satan comes along and tries to steal it. And he attacks holy order and boundaries. So we have an attack on morals, values. Well, shall we do this? Is this right? Is it wrong? Um, who knows? Who's to say? We have an attack on relationships. Relationships fail. There's breakup of families, there's breakup of marriages, there's breakup of, of, of good relationships. There is the attack on sexuality and gender that we've talked about, confusion. Am I this? Am I that? Do I do this? Is this okay? Is it not? What does God think? Is God there anymore? And then we have the attack on our self-image. Well, I'm just, you know... I'm, I'm not really worth anything. I just sit in the chair and I do this and that, but all these other people, they're they're much superior to me. Your identity is under attack. And just as we have all these things that are supposed to protect us from identity theft, we need to be aware that there is a war on that is attacking our identity. And we need to be on the lookout to see how that can be working out. Because influences without God come along and say, well, what's the meaning of right or wrong? Forget rules, just watch out for yourself. If it feels good, do it. If it'll advance you, fine. No external set of values or rules. So identity is fragmented, it's twisted, it's distorted, it's confused. So where does that leave us? Who are you? Who am I? Well, I have a place in a family. So... I'm a father, I'm a son, I'm a brother, I'm a sister, I'm a grandmother, I'm an aunt, whatever. You have an identity there. You have or did have or will have some sort of employment, properly, probably. That gives you an identity. You've got a job title. You have a certain status that goes with that. You probably want the next one up. But you have an identity from your employment. And then leisure. Well, what do you like doing? Well, I like driving old cars. Well, that gives me an identity. Well especially when they're fast cars, that boosts my faltering ego. (laughs) Oh, yes. 
Um, so leisure, you play golf perhaps, that gives you an identity. You can spend hours propping up the bar talking about golf and your hole in one and, and when you beat so and so and how you ended up in the rough and all the rest of it. It gives you an identity and that's fine. You have skills. I'm a welder. I'm a carpenter. I'm a nurse. I have skills. I can do this stuff. That gives you an identity. This is all good stuff. I have friends, so I have an identity that sort of as part of my friendships. And I have an identity to do with church. All these things are good and they are part of our identity. Each brings with it some aspect of identity. Okay? I remember, there are dangers though. I remember when I was in the UK, I was an associate pastor, assistant, well, yeah, associate pastor in a Baptist church in Winchester. And I remember a guy from another church I knew, I'd heard about this guy. He used to be an associate, an assistant pastor in another church in Winchester. And I'm not sure whether he was let go or what, but he's no longer doing this assistant pastor role. And he wanted to come and see me sometime. So I said, oh, fine, okay. He didn't go to my church, but I knew a bit about him. And one of the things he wanted to do was he wanted to set up a group for assistant pastors. And I'm thinking, nah. To start with, you are not an assistant pastor anymore. And I'm thinking, this guy is still trying to cling on to an identity that he hasn't got anymore. Okay? I felt sorry for him because presumably that meant he was struggling in who he was. Because to try to hold on to something that is no longer happening for you, you're, you're on a hiding to nothing. You're trying to boost your ego. You're trying to boost your self-identity with something that's not real. Anybody ever done that? Ooh. You stop your role. What happens when you, the kids, the, 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 your empty nesters? Ooh. But my little baby needs me. No, he doesn't. <laughs> he can do it on his own. He doesn't need you anymore. Oh, where's my role gone? Where's my identity gone? See, it's not just the super spiritual stuff, it's daily practical stuff as well that this sense of identity affects. So who are you? So we need to be not leaning too heavily on any secondary identity, our job, our position in our family, our role, our leisure pursuits. Don't lean too heavily on that to prop yourself up because it might give way and it might go away. When I retired, it was fine in England. Um, it was good. But I thought, oh, I no longer got this title. Governor Support Manager was my title for a London borough of Brent, working with school equivalent to school boards. That was impressive. But the day I walked out of the office, bang goes the title. Oh dear. Who am I? Same with you. When we transition from one role to another, when you perhaps say, I'm not going to be on the F&F anymore, please don't resign, F&F members, that's just an example. I'm not going to teach Sunday school anymore. I'm going to stop doing that. There goes a bit of identity. That's okay if it's a good and right thing to do. But what is left, and it's the what is left that I want us to focus on later. What happens when your roles are stripped away? Is there anything left? Now, at this point, I'm going to ask Diana Revoir to come up because she is going to speak to this very issue about identity and change. Thank you. Okay. Hi. Good morning. Okay, so um, my life definitely was affected by the top two on that list. And in keeping with your spirit, Derek, I'm going to start with a quote from an unknown, somebody you don't know too. So <laughs> I'm going to begin with um, Laura Petherbridge, who is an author and a speaker, said, what used to be normal is no longer, and denial does not get us anywhere good. Um, in 2018, last year, I lost my husband, Dean, and I lost my identity as a wife. And I also retired from teaching, and I lost my identity as Mrs. Revoir, fifth grade teacher. And as you know, I went to the Grief Share program last year, and right away in the third week 
of the grief share program, they hit us with these goals that they wanted me to reach in my grief. And very briefly, I mean, I saw that I was taking steps in some of those areas. Um, three of the goals were, one of them was acceptance. That was a tough one. Um, another was turning to God. I saw that I was doing that. And expressing my emotions. Anybody who knows me knows I can do that pretty well. But I remember looking at that fourth goal, and that one was finding a new, uh, a new identity, establishing a new identity. And I really didn't know what that meant, and that really scared me quite a bit because I figured I didn't know who I was anymore at that point. And it was, it was very daunting. And I had no idea how I was going to go about doing that. And it was just a terrifying idea. And I knew that I really needed to figure out who I was apart from being a wife and a teacher. And I knew that I could not live in my old sense of normal because that normal no longer existed. So there were some things that I did figure out along the way that I'd like to share with you. First thing that I always knew was that grief was not going to be my identity. Um, if you take on grief as an identity, it's, it's harmful. And I didn't want to give myself permission to do that, to say, okay, I'm going to isolate myself, I'm going to ignore my responsibilities because of the grief. It was something that I was going through, um, but I was determined that that's not what was going to define me as a person. And anybody who's been through grief knows it's disruptive, it's highly emotional, and it will change you. It changed me, but it wasn't going to take over my sense of being. And through the grief, God offers an amazing sense of comfort. And he has a better way of, understand, of allowing me to understand who I am. And he wants me to know that I am his no matter what I'm going through. He wants me to have that, whether I'm going through grief or whether it's the most joyous season of my life, that he's there and he's part of that identity. So it was from that point that I, I mean, I always knew I was a child of God. But I believe I started living it more during that time. I began to really see that that was where my identity was. And I learned to figure, I learned to find who I really was in Christ. I learned to draw the conclusions about who I was based on the biblical truths about Jesus and what he has done for me. I was no longer a wife or a teacher. It was extremely painful and difficult to lose my husband and my identity as a wife. And figuring out who I was without my career, that was confusing especially when all my other friends in retirement, they knew what they were going to be doing. They were doing this. One was in a musical career. Somebody else took on another job. I had no idea what I was going to be doing. And it was, it was frightening. But I was still a child of God no matter what I was feeling. You know, I learned not to depend on my feelings. My feelings changed constantly, and those weren't to be trusted. What God knew I was and who I was, that was constant no matter what I was thinking about it myself. I knew that being a child of God was an identity that I can't lose. It's eternal. So I began to focus, meditate, and pray on that. And God began to open my eyes, and he opened up doors to new opportunities for me. And I also learned I had to embrace my new situation. I remember we spoke about embracing before, a couple of weeks ago. That didn't mean I liked what had happened to me. It meant that I didn't have a vote or a choice about losing my husband. It meant that I had to accept that my life before, I was referred to his, before his death as my before and after as my after. I needed to embrace what was now my after. So I began to, to embrace who I was, that I embraced my singleness and my independence. I spent more time with God and getting to know him better. And I spent more time in prayer and worship. I didn't love the idea of being single again and being without my husband. But I began to embrace those positive aspects of it. And I did spend more time with my friends, and I realized, you know, there was value in those relationships. Um, I found myself more engaged in conversations with, with other people. And then also I learned that, well, being retired also, also gave me the luxury of being able to do that. And I was not in the hurry that I was in before, you know, constantly thinking about work. So I was able to slow down and really listen to what people had to say and really engage in a conversation much more than I ever had before. And then I also realized that there were parts of my life that I just needed to let go of, that there were things that 
I was doing that I didn't necessarily enjoy because I was married. I did things because my husband enjoyed doing them. And it took me a while to figure certain things out. Like, for example, you know, certain games. It's like, I don't like doing those things. And, and I was able to let go of those things without feeling guilty about it. But at the same time, I was able to continue to do those activities that we did enjoy together and, and not to feel sad about doing them, but to enjoy them because I'm still here to do it. And God brought many new people into my life, and he reconnected me with old friends. And he also helped me heal some broken relationships that I had in my life, too. And that was a good thing. And he brought me back to this church. Okay, I knew that I needed the fellowship of people who have walked this journey of grief already. And as a result, we now have a grief share ministry in this church. It's helping to bring other grieving people close to a closer relationship with the Lord and to help them heal from their loss. So other doors have opened that have given me the opportunity to serve in my community as a result of my experience in education. And I'm excited to see what else God has in store for me. I want to continue to seek him and to discover how he'll shape my identity in the future because he's not done. He'll constantly change my normal, and he'll change your normal too. But I will always be and forever be a child of God just as you will be. Thank you. Great. That was powerful. Thanks, Dinah. Fantastic. Not easy to stand up and say that. Well done. Thanks, Dinah. Wow. That was powerful. Identity shattered and identity reborn. So, really, that's what we're talking about. Coming back to computers. Some ever got to the point where you sort of press the factory reset, you're going to lose all the other stuff that's been added on, and you're just left with the thing as it arrived out of the, out of the box. And sometimes that happens to us. Something hits us, and we lost, as, as Diana was saying, we lost a relationship, we lost a loved one, we lost an identity. What's left? And you heard something of, Di- from, of Diana's testimony of how she's found that there is life there is an identity after things are stripped away. So, who are you? Keep asking this question. If you're an atheist, it's just you and a big black question mark. Or, if it's just me and God, bring God into the picture, well, things are a little bit more hopeful. And this is what I want to move on to, identity redeemed. We talked about what is the image of God a little bit. We talked about what was good about creation because God did it. But am I who I think I am? Am I who others say I am? And am I who God says I am? Well, at this point, you'll be pleased to know that we're going to listen to a song, not a live song, but a song by Lauren Daigle called You Say. And I want you to focus on the words, which I hope should be on the screen. So over to our experts. I keep fighting voices in my mind that say I'm not enough. Every single
song identity redemption identity redemption I'm certainly not who others say I am I'm probably not who I think I am but I am who God says I am but that's the problem when we were listening to that song you say but I feel you say but I can't see it And this is where, if we're going to go in for identity redemption, I want to hold on to the you say. Basically, that's when the battle starts. Her conclusion, I believe. I believe. But it's a battle. And this is what I want to focus on for a minute. If we're going to see our identity being redeemed, if we're going to grasp hold of what it means to be made in God's image, to be loved by God, to be a child of God, it is hard work because it goes, the grain, goes against the grain of this world and it's easy to give up. I love the way Diana says she refused to be defined. I haven't got the words quite right. I refuse to be defined by my grief, by my loss. We have a choice Hard choices. I know what she means because I've been there as well. Um, some, so have some of you. What are we going to let define our lives? Is it the things that happen to us? Or are we going to, with Lauren Daigle and with Diana and with others, struggle to get through to hold on to what God says of us? Now, there's all sorts of verses that we could look at that... That's gone a bit funny. Um, the verses were supposed to be all on the right-hand side. It sort of moved a bit, but it doesn't matter. We, we'll, get the, we'll get the point of it. Um, there's all sorts of verses we could look at to do with identity being redeemed. But those are just a few. that, that They don't define it, but they, they just help us. That number one at the top, created. 1 Thessalonians, may God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now I said I'd come back to that. I can't give a satisfactory answer, but we are more than a body. The Bible talks about a body, soul and spirit. Sometimes you hear these stories of someone who is with their loved one when they die and it's almost as if they can see something invisible depart. Have you ever heard of one of those stories? Is that the person's spirit departing? I don't don't know. How does that relate to the soul? Because the Bible doesn't give a definition of these things, so we will never get a totally satisfactory answer. But we have a body. Don't have any problems with that. Well, you probably do have problems with your body, but we won't (laughs) argue about it. We can see it. You know, it's touchy-feely. We know it's there. We have a soul. Well, that's the part of us that reasons, that thinks things out, that feels emotions, that makes choices. It's to do with our mind. Where does it reside in the body? Well, it's all to do with our mind, our brain, but it's more than that. It permeates our being. And then there's the spirit, 
which is the real you and the real me. When we go to be with Jesus, we will receive a new body and our spirit will be free of this body. So the spirit, if you like, is the essence of who you are. Now, that doesn't answer your question, Steve. I realize that fully. Ask Pastor John because he's much better at it. But it's, we're, we're trying to understand something in the dimension that we don't move in much at the moment. That things are the spirit, things are the soul. But we are this tripartite being that the Bible seems to illustrate here. The th- important thing about this verse, though, is says, may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of the Lord. Whoa! You will be kept blameless because the sin in your life, the power of it, has gone. The death has happened. Jesus has died, and so you are free. As a human being, you are free from the power of sin. Yeah, we still do things wrong. We still sin. But the power of it, the power of sin is death, and death will not touch you. When we not, I'm not talking about physical death. I'm talking about spiritual death, separation from God. You'll go nowhere near that because you belong to Jesus. In Christ alone, my hope is found. Then Luke twelve seven says, Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Well, for some of us, that gives God quite a task. <laughs> others of us, it doesn't give God much of a ch- task. And others of us, he has to do a recount every day because it's changing. <laughs> Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Don't be afraid. You're worth much more than many sparrows. That's the Jesus in the middle of that conversation. <clears throat> Not even a sparrow falls to the ground without your father knowing. He's counted the hairs on your head. That matches up with that Psalm 139. God's knowledge of you is so close, so intimate, so total. You have intrinsic value before you have done anything. And that's where we say press the factory reset. Take away all the stuff I've done and all the identity. What is left? You have an intrinsic value just because you are you. You don't have to say anything. You don't have to do anything. You have been created by God and God saw and said it was very good. That's you. That's me. Yeah, I know sin's in the way. That will pass off. But the essence of you is good. Don't put yourself down. And then Zephaniah The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. Delight. God, delighting. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. Okay, this was said to a specific time, to a specific people, but it shows the heart of God towards his people. Delight, rejoice. Okay? So when we were firing those rockets at each other last week and throwing the ball around and enjoying and the kids running around. In a sense, God was doing that because he's all for life and celebration and goodness and purity and holiness and fun and life. God is the author of life. God is not to sit in a rose and be religious, be quiet. God's here. Shh. That's not like God. They tried that. They said to Jesus, hey, look at all these kids running around singing songs. Let them get on with it, Jesus said. Don't do that in this church. You got the wrong church. Okay. Celebration, delight. The next one, boundaries. We have the Ten Commandments. Healthy boundaries, healthy priorities. We've had a series on that. Needn't say much more about that. And then, linked with that, we have freedom. Genesis 2. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. The Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but there's one that you mustn't because you will die. We are free. God has put us on this earth, said you're free to do everything you like within healthy, godly boundaries. They are good for us, these boundaries. They are good for us. We might kick against them. But if we have a boundary that is God-given, it is actually for our good because it's part of God's creation and it's part of God's way of doing things and he is good. Genesis. Non-negotiable. God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created the male and female. Now, as Pastor John has said, there are occasional issues where somebody's body is not fully formed sexually and there's a bit of both. Okay, 
park that for one side. That is difficult for the person involved. But for normal, wholly made, created men and women, that is how God designed it, as men and women. And I don't try to gloss over the pain that people go through where they question their own identity. I cannot understand, I cannot imagine what that's like for someone, but it must be a place of pain and difficulty and heartache. And so if ever you have to something to, anything to do with someone who's had a gender change, don't just write them off. Don't say, oh, you've sinned. There's a whole lot more to it than that. What would Jesus say to that person? He'd reach out to them in love and compassion not going to get into that. I said this is not a sermon about gender issues, but it is part of it. And the last one on that, number seven, eternal. And this is, this is fantastic. Remember the transfiguration. Moses and Elijah. Jesus took John, um, Peter, James, and John up the mountain. And there he was transfigured. His face shone like the sun, and his, fa- his clothes became as white as the light. And there appeared before them Moses and Elijah. Weren't they dead? They died, Moses, 1,300 years ago. Elijah, 700 years, that's right. Talking with Jesus. But they're alive. No, they're not, they're dead. Ah, they're alive. How can they? It didn't say somebody pretending to be Moses and somebody pretending to be Moses. It said Moses and Elijah and Jesus was talking to them. This says something about our identity and it just confirms you cannot wipe us out when we die physically. There was Moses who had died, yeah, 1,200 1300 years previously and there was Elijah 700 years previously they're still alive and it's still Moses and it's still Elijah they have a resurrection body but hang on Jesus hadn't been I know but God doesn't dwell in time God's not limited by time nobody will get into heaven apart from the work of Jesus Moses and Elijah only got into heaven because of Jesus the work of Jesus went back in time as well as going on in time oh thank you that's got them all lined up nicely but that tells us something about our identity it goes beyond the grave you need not fear non-being ever have met someone or ever felt I, I don't know what I, I have a fear of not being you need not have that fear Moses and Elijah were still alive and so will you be after your physical death so there was an element of identity there was an element of continuity there was certainly an element of resurrection and an element of eternity built into you as a child of God it is part of who you are and when we expand our view of who we are into these areas it just is so much more fulfilling and truth within us we have a choice what are we going to let influence us We've heard about that already. Are we going to let things overwhelm us and become our identity to dominate us? Just what do we believe? And that's so important. A guy called Stephen Vyers said, Who am I? What really defines my existence? I want to be that. I want my my identity to be based on something that can never be lost. Based my identity on something that can never be lost lost and in Jesus your personhood your being will never be lost refuse to be defined by other things know that eternal identity I just want to read a couple of quotes as we come towards a close I've got to find this anyone uh, it takes real effort to be a person People often complain that they are not what they should be, but they take no action to change. Will you be yourself, not just any self, but the self you should be, the one you were created to be? Will you give attention to yourself, think about yourself, be honest with yourself, and take action with God's help and in dialogue with others to change? At some point, we have to take responsibility for ourselves. We can blame our parents or our circumstances only so long. You are responsible for who you are. You deserve the chance to make an honest and critical analysis of yourself and choose with an honest executive self to be who you should be. 
You deserve to be the real you. And I think what I've been trying to emphasize this morning is the real you is only grasped hold of as we see it in the light of our eternal life and our identity redeemed and the fact that that goes beyond the grave. That is the real you. That is the real me. Now, I haven't got time, but I was going to talk about the, the prodigal son or the two sons and just let that title sink in. Grace affirms our identity. The loving father embraced his, uh, his younger son. He tried to reason with his older son with grace. And when we come to God, we need to know and remember and grasp hold of the fact that God is a God of grace, that he's created us good, that sin has stirred it up a bit, but that will pass away and we will be totally redeemed. Moses and Elijah were still there, going strong after hundreds of years of death. They were alive. You and I will be alive. So the one thought, really, is we have a core ID. And that's what God says about us, in essence. We have secondary identities that we heard about from Diana, (coughs) that we all have, that come and go. What are we going to hold on to as the core of our being? Is it the core identity or are we going to let some of these other things dominate us? They only last for a time. Our role is to seek after the truth that is in Jesus. I just want to read a poem as we close, written by a member of this church, something to do with the home group. It's called Who Am I? The poet doesn't claim to be a professional, but it's interesting. Who am I? Am I what I earn my paycheck doing? But if I stop doing it, do I change? Am I what the world tells me I am? Am I think, am I who they think I am? That's scary. I'm a son, a father, a grandfather, a husband, a brother. Is this who I am? These go deep, but is there more? Am I the product of random evolution, a meaningless speck of protoplasm in a world with no purpose or design? No. Don't leave me there. There must be more to who I am. And then I see a baby in a manger. I see a man who confounded the religious system. I see a man who healed, who forgave, delivered, cared, loved. I see a man who always seemed to be with the wrong people. And then I see that man stretched out on a cross. I see his lifeless body laid in a tomb. But then I see that the tomb is now empty. That same man cannot succumb to death. Surely... With no death, there is only life, unstoppable. The man says, I can share that life. Whoever I am, whatever I am, it's because of that man. I choose, I choose to strive to be like that man. Then I will know who I really am. I hear that I'm a loved child of God. I choose to believe it. That identity never ends. That must be the wellspring of my life the ground on which I stand. It's who I am. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that we've been able to focus on this this morning. I pray that as we go in a couple of minutes now and as we live our lives this week, I pray that your truth will just suffuse into our beings and soak into our beings that we might know more and more what it means to be who we are. Help us, Lord, when there is attention you say but I feel or you say but I can't see it Lord we just want to say with Lauren Daigle I believe but Lord we probably add help my unbelief help us to struggle Lord to get through and to live in a place of reality and fulfillment in Jesus name Amen now very quickly if the ushers could come forward please we have a couple of notices so if the ushers would like to come and take the offering up while we're doing the notices That will be fine, thank you. I've got one or two notices here. Um, We've had a a little note from Debbie and Michael Bannon. We sent, through Harmony Helpers and the church, we sent them something at Christmas. And I think it's caught up with them, and they have replied to us. Just yesterday, yesterday, we received a huge blessing from you. We imported to our head, we reported to our headquarters for the start of our orientation to our new position as mobilizers, and when we got there... A package was waiting from us, from you. It had travelled to Ireland and back, 
and was now at our World Venture office in Colorado. There inside was the sweet Christmas nativity decoration you had made and the lovely Christmas card and then the most generous gift card of $100. Thank you so very much. It couldn't have gotten us to us at a better time. We've been living now in our new home for three weeks today and still trying to unpack. We still have curtain rods to buy and curtains to hang, shelves to buy or build in order to unpack books, family pictures. The employees at Home Depot and Walmart are beginning to recognize us. Ha! Huh. So it was really perfect timing for your Christmas gift to arrive. Thank you so very much. You can't imagine how much you blessed us. We'll be in touch as we get more familiar with our new ministry and hope to visit you in the, in the fall. Thank you for your wonderful partnership with us. The Lord is so good. Blessings and love. Debbie and Michael Bannon. They are a couple whom we support as mission people and they are working helping release others into the mission field. Um, a couple of notices. There is still time to join the Spring Financial Peace University. So if you want to join that, see Glenn Peterson or Dean Lucas afterwards. New members classes next Sunday, 9 o'clock. If you missed the first one but want to come to the second one, please do. It's 9 o'clock through there, through the gym in room 18. Next Sunday, 9 o'clock in the morning, new members class. There is no grief share tomorrow. Grief share will continue a week tomorrow. If what Diana said sparked something in your heart, pop along to grief share a week tomorrow. Okay? doesn't matter whether your loss was last month, 20 years ago. I go to grief share. I've been dragged along kicking and screaming. My <laughs> main loss was 20 years ago. But I'm going to grief share. Are you? Okay, let's pray. Father, it's been good to be together. Bless us as we go. Help us to live in fellowship with you and one another. May your grace go with us. Pray that you'll bless Pastor John and Sherry as well. May they have a great time away. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You are dismissed.